During the pandemic, many issues have come up, including the issue of racism. I have to start this podcast by being honest with you. My mother immigrated from Ireland, and my father's parents were an immigrant and a first-generation American. I was born in New York City, but I grew up in Down East Maine. I was taught not to see color, yet I didn't experience diversity until I went to college and was part of the athletic department as a cheerleader. So as I come to terms with race issues and think about how to approach them, I understand my knowledge is limited. My name is Kimberly Haas. Join me as we dig deeper into these issues and more during our third podcast in this Wellness Connections series produced by the Community Alliance for Teen Safety in Derry. As a news reporter, I was always taught to find the person who is the expert on the subject. When it came to race and diversity here in New Hampshire, I had a trusted source. That person was Rogers Johnson, president of the Seacoast chapter of the NAACP. When Rogers died at the age of 62 in 2020, I remember telling a colleague of mine that I didn't know how I would ever cover race issues without him. Rogers was the type of man that would always pick up the phone and he would spend 45 minutes of his time explaining things to you in a way that even a white girl from Maine could understand. When it came time to put together this podcast, I had a really hard time. I can't call Rogers in heaven, but I know what he would tell me to do. Be honest and speak truth to power. When Rogers died, I covered it for two news outlets in the state. James McKim, president of the Manchester branch of the NAACP, said, and I quote, what I want people to know about him is he always spoke truth to power, even when it was unpopular, and he encouraged everyone to do that, end quote. The events of this past year have shown me we do have racism in this country, and the pandemic has made it all seem that much harder. One of the greatest disappointments of my life is that this has not changed as much as I had hoped for as a young person. And I have to explain these issues to my nieces and nephews when they have questions. My father is the one who taught me about race. He never said much about it, except to say that when he served in Vietnam, everybody fought together. I know people have different stories about serving in Vietnam and what happened with race, but I called my dad to ask him a few questions before I started recording this. He explained that in boot camp in 1967, he had a black drill instructor. That instructor told the men there were no white people there, there were no black people there, there were no yellow people there, and there were no red people there. He said, we're all green, we're all Marines. 
my father said that answered all of his questions about race during war. As we come out of the pandemic, which has killed more Americans than World War II, Korea, and Vietnam combined, I would like to ask all of you to remember, we fight on the same team. We're all green. This one is for you, Rogers. James McKim was able to join us for this podcast in May. I'd like to start with his interview. So tell me, James, how do you get involved with the NAACP? How did that become part of your world? Uh, well, it became part of my world um, because I was really doing work already around um, racial reconciliation for the Episcopal Church. Okay. Uh, I've been doing work for the Episcopal Church for a number of years um, for the Diocese of New Hampshire, as well as nationally. I chair the National Executive Committee Council on Anti-Racism and Reconciliation. Um, And so um, I was doing that as I was working at Hewlett Packard in a global role. And uh, when I left Hewlett Packard, I started thinking, well, what should I be doing locally now that I'm no longer in a position that has a global focus? And um, I thought, well, maybe I'll start attending an NAACP meeting. I attended, and um, the president then, Eric Jackson, kind of twisted my arm and said, (laughs) because I probably spoke up a little too much, asked too many questions. There's nothing wrong with asking too many questions. (laughs) Uh, yeah. Um, so you 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 got you be good for a leadership position. Would you like to become treasurer? So I became treasurer, and uh, from that uh, he left uh, a couple of years ago, and they asked me to take over as president. So that's how I got involved with the organization. Not really having an original design in my life to be part of the NAACP. So it somewhat happens kind of by circumstance that I joined the group. All right. And now, so tell me, like for people who, who don't understand, like do you have to be a certain age to be part of the organization? Or is this something that anybody of any age can participate in. I'm thinking of some of the you know, teenagers who may be listening to this podcast. Right. So the NAACP does, uh, we welcome all ages, all races, all backgrounds as members. Um, and the programs that we have are focused on adults as well as on youth. Um, We have a special um, program for youth because we want to develop leadership. We want to develop leadership in our youth to take over and address these issues that us older folks uh, have been working on and uh, may not see uh, addressed in our lifetimes, which this issue of discrimination is one of those that's been around with us for over 400 years, and it's about culture. And we know that culture changes very, very slowly. It takes generations for culture to change. So uh, while we do have programs that are focused on 
educating adults about financial literacy and career literacy and uh, help them deal with discriminatory situations, our youth efforts are focused on growing youth and giving them a place to uh, just talk about what it means to be a youth and particularly a youth of color in this 90% white state that we live in. And for the Manchester area, it's a little less white, but still uh, it's about 82% white. So what does it take to, to live in that situation in a black or brown body? We experience things differently than uh, people who are socialized as white experience them. So how do we help our youth? The programs are centered around helping youth to really understand what those differences are and how to navigate, how to integrate, uh, yet keep your own identity, be proud of who you are. So if somebody was interested in participating in the program, how would they reach out? So they can uh, go to our website, which is and uh, NAACP Manchester NH.com and they'll see a plethora of information about what we are up to. Uh, there is a join us button right there uh, on the, the main page and that will take you to a page where you can become a member, be it a, an adult member and there are several membership classes that you can choose from. Uh, you can become a, an adult member for a year, an adult member for a lifetime, you can become a youth member for a year, a youth member for uh, that translates into an adult membership over your lifetime. Um, and we have meetings. We have uh, general member meetings every fourth Thursday of the month from 6.30 to uh, roughly uh, 8 o'clock. And these days of COVID, we are virtual. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Uh, we're using Zoom to have our meetings, and anyone is welcome to come from youth to adults, where we share what's going on in our lives. And we usually have a guest speaker who shares with us insights into some area uh, that impacts us. Um, our, uh, we've had sessions on uh, COVID-19 and what that means for people of color some of the myths that have happened around COVID-19 and some of the, the responses and resources that are available to help people. Uh, when, uh, when COVID shut down a lot of businesses, uh, we, we had uh, um, representatives from Congressman Pappas's office, from uh, the Small Business Development Corp, uh, many different organizations come talk to us about what it, what the, assistance is for businesses to get through the pandemic. Uh, for youth, uh, we talk about youth programs. We have discussions and we bring people in to talk about what it means to be a youth and what programs are out there to help youth. Because we're not the, we, we don't purport to be the only program out there to help youth. Um, there are programs that the Granite State Organizing Project puts on, that the YWCA puts on. We're actually co-sponsoring some. So we, we do talk about and have uh, gatherings of youth to, to talk about what they want to talk about and try to direct them into programs where they can grow as leaders rather than followers. Now, of course, <laughs> COVID-19 has affected 
everybody throughout the country. But another thing that's really affected people this year is the recognition of some of the systematic racism that's still part of our country. As you said before, culture takes many years to change. Have you seen that be a topic of conversation within your membership over the course of the past year? <laughs> it's always forefront on our minds <laughs> that we are trying to address systems as well as individuals. Um, and you know, the systems are, we do have systemic racism here in New Hampshire. And it's been here for, for ages. And so one of our jobs is to help people understand what that means. What systems are racist? How are they racist? Um, and, you know, they're, in most cases, racist unintentionally. And because they're unintentionally racist, people don't recognize that they are. So we've been fighting to educate the general population on where those discriminatory places are, where those situations are that are systemic in nature. And then we try to address them. Our education committee is working with the Manchester School Board to try to address the Department of Education's findings that the Manchester School District was discriminatory back in 2014. And the school district put together a plan to address those, um, those claims, those charges, but hasn't really done anything to implement that plan. So we're now meeting with the school district to make sure that what the school district said it was going to do, it will actually do. Yeah, especially when it comes to education, it's so important that the the students who go to Manchester schools feel the same sense of security and um, pride in being there as as every other child. How about when it comes to like, for example, public safety, that seems to be the big thing on the news. So public safety and law enforcement, and uh, as some of your listeners may know, uh, the governor asked me to serve on the on his commission on law enforcement, accountability, community and transparency. So uh, I, I never thought I would know so much about law enforcement. <laughs> and over the summer, I got a crash course sitting in the, the hearings of the over 150 or so hours worth of hearings mm. that that we had. Um, so. Uh, with respect to, to, to law enforcement, you know, we, I want to start off by saying that most of the officers in New Hampshire who have arrest authority, which is the term used to, for law enforcement, which includes, interestingly enough, and I didn't know this until I served on the commission, includes officers like fish and game officers. Mm -hmm. They have arrest authority. Um, so most of the officers are good officers. They're well-intended. I know the leadership of law enforcement from the commissioner of the state police on down and, and chiefs. They have a great desire to make sure that their agencies are providing services to all people. 
And so the systems, the policies and procedures that have been put in place have been put in place in good faith. The challenge that is faced, though, is policing started in this country as a way to keep black bodies in their places. It has grown. It has, uh, it has evolved to not have that major purpose. But we're talking culture again, the culture of policing across the country. And it's not so much here in New Hampshire, thank goodness. But still, the, the notion of policing is such that people of color have a distrust, an innate distrust of law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So uh, with that innate distrust, the policies and procedures of law enforcement have not been built with that acknowledgement in mind. So that along with the fact that every one of us, law enforcement officers and non-law enforcement officers have implicit bias. We all have implicit bias. And we have been conditioned through media, through the stories that we've heard, that black bodies are dangerous. So when good people try to execute policies and procedures that are well-intended, they can inadvertently be discriminatory. And that that's where the, the mistrust comes in, because people of color know, they see in the news all the time, these killings that are happening. So there's a nervousness with any interaction with police, with law enforcement. And law enforcement doesn't understand necessarily this mistrust and doesn't understand necessarily their own implicit bias, which is changing now because of what the governor did to put forth this commission to really educate us as a commission. And we've lifted up this need for implicit bias training throughout all law enforcement, which is, which is happening. I've actually delivered training to prosecutors, to police officers across the state. So it's happening. We're, we're, we're changing. We're, we're growing. We're making a difference, but we're not there yet. Mm. And I, I, I hope that answered the question. I'm not even remembering what the original question no, was. No, no, that's per that's perfect, to, James. To it's it's been something that's of concern across the board for residents of our states. I don't think. Um, you know, the idea of people being treated unfairly by law enforcement is taken well, regardless of the circumstances. So I'm, I'm here, happy to hear you say that there, the, the conversation is happening and, and, and there are opportunities that are being taken advantage of and that the community, the law enforcement community is working with your community as well to ensure that um, what we've all witnessed over the course of the, the last year will not happen here in New Hampshire. Now, what, what advice 
James, would you would you give to youth of color here in New Hampshire, or, or maybe what would you tell your your younger self? I think that they could really benefit from hearing that from you as we wrap up today. Um, so, uh, one piece of advice that comes to mind is a quote from Richard Nixon. Uh, during the time when there was discussion about uh, re-establishing relationship with China. Um, he said, trust but verify. So I take that to be, have trust in society, have trust in law enforcement. As Dr. Martin Luther King said, the long arc of justice uh, a long arc of history bends toward justice. So have trust, have faith that we are going to get better as a society. But at the same time, don't just sit back and hope that it happens. Verify. Become part of the discussion. Become part of life. Um, get involved in your community. Get involved in government. Uh, Make sure you're watching what this New Hampshire legislature is doing to create laws. Make sure you watch what is happening at City Hall in the creation of local laws. And reach out to your representatives. They need to hear what your opinions are. Learn about what's going on and make your voice known and, and get involved. Yeah, that's that is really great advice, James. No matter what somebody's passion may be, it's just to get involved in life. And um, I think if we all take that approach, we will be marching in the right direction together. COVID has also shown us the kind of racism that comes with extreme fear especially when it comes to our health. In this case, it was the origins of the virus in China that caused a lot of issues for Asian Americans. I was able to connect with Lily Tang Williams in April. She is the co-chair of the New Hampshire Asian American Coalition. Some of the issues she talked about have now been resolved with kids getting back into school, etc. But her overall message is one I think is worth sharing. How are you today, Lily? Oh, I'm doing great. And, and it's a beautiful day now outside. So thanks for having me. Anytime. We're, we're thrilled to hear about the work that you're doing. Tell us about your new organization. I understand it just recently formed. Right. Um, you know, I don't know if you are aware. I mean, I found out that uh, the aging Americans actually uh, is the largest minority group in New Hampshire. And uh, um, so we have uh, agents from all of the other parts of the world, the Japanese, the Thai, Indian. Um, I think the largest two groups would be the Chinese and Vietnamese. And uh, so we wanted to officially form our organization we did last month through Secretary of State. We call that a social and a civics organization to 
voice um, for aging Americans. We also form to promote non-discrimination, unity, love, and uh, acceptance. I think nowadays it's really badly needed for our country and our state. And, and uh, of course, you know, help each other in the community. So, you know, we have a Facebook page if you want to follow us called the New Hampshire Aging American Coalition. And we're still new, still growing. Um, so, so far, so good. Tell us a little bit about the work that you want to do here in New Hampshire to help promote that culture of love and, and unity and everybody working together. Well, to give you an example, we are planning our first rally event, actually, this Saturday. And by the time this podcast come out, maybe too late. Um, but this Saturday, we will have a rally called uh, Stop the Critical Race Theory Introduction. Um, because they, I don't know how much you know about the critical race theory. So basically, it claims to... Uh, to to say that uh, you know America is a systemic racist country, all whites are born racist, and we do have ninety seven percent of people in New Hampshire are white. You know, uh, you know, we just uh, you know don't like that claim, and uh, we want to get the people united to live happily together in our state. And I'm the only public agent in my town where I feel people here are wonderful, welcoming. And we do things together. We go lunch together. So, so we wanted to promote that the unity. So our message will be, you know what? We love America and we love New Hampshire. And we want the people to join us to say that, uh, you know, we all are created equal regardless of your race and color. We all want to live in American dream. So we invite everybody to come to join us this Saturday at the Concord State House from 1 p.m. to 2.30 p.m. And uh, we will see what happens, but we got a permit for it. So hope people will come to support our unity messages. Yeah, I think it's so important, especially now that we've all gone through the pandemic together and seen the the, the racial uh, inequalities in America so clearly that we do come together and, and work together. Now, when you think about the the youth in your community, that's that's really the next generation. Tell us a little bit about how you're involving young Asians and whether or not they're excited to participate in the coalition. Yeah, we do have some young people, biennial generations, uh, and, and of course the parents who are involved and have their kids in schools and. And, uh, um, you know, personally, I, my kids are grown up. They're young adults now. I don't have, you know, school age kids living with us in where. But I, I grew up in communist China. So I always believed that, you know, all citizens should uh, um, trust each other and help each other out. And we don't want to be divided because that's what the communists uh, did in China under Mao. They divided the people into two big classes and like oppressors versus oppressed and everybody fight each other and, and near the end we all become basically slaves lost our freedom rights so i want to get all the people to be united here our young people they, they seem to not understand 
the real history much, especially if they never lived in another totalitarian country, not taught real history in, in schools, they don't know. So we are involving them and hopefully they will learn from uh, their parents' generation as immigrants and, uh, and, and get them educated and knowledgeable of um, what happened in the past and to help each other out. That's what community is about. You help each other and you, you trust each other. You provide this emotional support. They bond. And uh, because we, you know, you saw in the pandemic how people were isolated because mm-hmm. you, you, you had all the lockdowns, the school shutting downs, and the people had to stay home, business got shut down. People were really depressed. You know, they had a mental crisis besides worry about their physical and all that fear. And uh, I heard in New Hampshire people now, they cannot even get a therapist appointment on time because so many people have mental health issues, especially our young, uh, our children, you know, teenagers. I mean, they just have to make sense out of all this and they don't have in-person social interactions. And if they don't have to have very strong loving parents at home, that's even worse. So that's where we come in. We see our special middle class, special minorities, working class people who don't have, you know, all that financial strong, um, you know, like uh, security. And if they lose their job, their kids are not going to school and they want to go work, but they have to help kids in school, you know, online. Oh, it's just uh, it's it's heartbreaking to see what happened. So. Well, I feel this need, we need support each other. I mean, especially the family with young kids. And I'm glad finally we see this is end of tunnel and the school opening up again. Our kids really need that social interaction because long, prolonged shutdowns and living fear is going to cause terror. And the terror becomes trauma. And the psychological damage is being done to our young people. So, you know, sometimes it's not even, you know, like a reversible. So we need to give that support to each other now. And especially the minorities who, you know, sometimes they don't have family here. You know, the parents are immigrant generations. So that's what we wanted to do and to reach out to them. I hope they can also reach out to us, too. Yeah, you mentioned the isolation that came along with the pandemic. And I can't help but think of um, two things that as immigrants to this country, because my mother was an immigrant from Ireland, she immigrated here. There was a sense of isolation within the family anyway, because they were unlike others around them. For example, my grandmother didn't allow her children to trick or treat. It was just not a a, a tradition she understood or could approve of. Do you think that there's a sense of isolation for immigrants anyway, and that's been compounded by the pandemic, where like, especially like you said, the teens are not able to interact one on one in a school setting. I agree with you. And um, when I first came over, I mean, of course, I was more mature, I was uh, almost 24 years old. But uh, you know, first of all, you did not have money. You were dirt poor and come here with nothing. Secondly, you don't speak very good English. Now you don't have family, friends. You don't understand culture. You, you have language barrier. You were in total a strange land as a stranger. So so that, uh, you know, if you already have those kind of natural immigrant issues, 
that compounded with the social isolation and shutting downs and uh, um, world affairs, anxiety, and the financial security worries. And it's just, uh, I just cannot imagine, you know, what, I mean, what kind of painful period they went through. And, uh, you know, that, that because I'm an immigrant, and uh, I'm lucky enough to live here for so many years now. I can speak fluent English with my husband's help and I raise three children here. I'm living American dream, but I'm very sympathetic to all the working class immigrants, what they're going through. And uh, so I always uh, trying to reach out to talk to them, say, hey, please talk to me. Please don't just keep everything to yourself. You know, because I heard the mental health issue that people were suffering in depression, they also don't want to reach out, they, but they're just trying to swallow everything in, and that's not healthy. And you say, you know, your suicide rate went up. If you look at the national data now coming out, the drug abuse, alcohol abuse, and the mental health issues all went through the roof. I'm very, very worried that. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a blessed in this country. I, I don't have lots of issues with other people have. I'm also a very sociable person, you know, and, and uh, I do things to keep myself busy and happy. But how about our communities? How about our children? So, so and, and I'm glad you, you also can see that your family come from Ireland too. So you have to adapt to this society, the culture, and only nuisance where you still have to allow deal with this compounded, you know, like a double, basically double the amount of stress you would normally have as a newer immigrant. And I still have Chinese friends here who don't speak fluent English yet. And uh, so sometimes we will just chat in Chinese to help each other out, whatever issues they're dealing with, include their kids, what they're dealing with, you know. Of course, it must feel so nice to be able to speak in your native language. My husband's grandmother um, immigrated as well from Austria, I believe, and she spoke German. And so she had a friend that she would love to speak German with just to be able right. to talk it, it, it the way that you think in your native tongue. Um, that's got to be very comforting for, for people during during the pandemic. And I'm, I'm so glad to hear that, that you're doing that with your community members. Yes, because, uh, you know, that um, I remember when I first uh, arrived in the U.S., you know, I actually was so poor, so I had a sponsor uh, who only spoke English, a professor, and to host me in his uh, home, so I cook and clean, exchange for free rent. And I remember I woke up in the morning, you know, the first week, I just really did not know what to say <laughs> because I was totally in a strange land. I miss Chinese food too. Like, like uh, I tried to learn, like, to eat their breakfast, like cereal. What is a cereal? <laughs> like, <laughs> and the milk, I, I, you know, like raw, just like a cold milk. So, I mean, I came over, of course, a long time ago, 1988, when China was still pretty backwards country and, and, the, and the people were not very Western opening up yet. But I remember just like, uh, oh, I was so homesick, you know, and, uh, and I, just wanted to somebody I can speak Mandarin Chinese too and have some a bowl of hot soup, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and but instead, I was, 
eating Western food in his home. I trying to cook some Chinese food, and I, 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 I trying to write down every new English word. I don't know how to spell, how to pronounce, and carry my little pocket in graduate school to double check if I pronounce them right and to understand meaning of it. Then I was stressed out with all this graduate school work. I could not understand English. So the Texas people were so nice. That's where I went to graduate school in UT Austin, and they they saw my stress and they offered me to lend their notes to me and explain things slowly to me. And I did not have a car. And then they offered to take me go shopping and offer donations like household items, used clothing and blankets. But I feel like wow, people in Texas were so wonderful. That's、mm. why I still have. I'm married to one later, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm married to a Texan, you know, who whose family were so over, you know, like a、uh, welcoming to me, open their arms, and and、uh, so so I'm very blessed in this country. But still, not everybody would have that kind of,、uh, you know, same good luck like me had, and and especially this is also first time I ever been to this country, saw this pandemic thing. And the 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 government shutdowns and and the schools shutdowns. I did not know even how to deal with them myself at the beginning because、uh, because I I still watch Chinese news, listen to Chinese、uh, you know language news. I saw like American did the same thing. You know China was doing. I was just very shocked and surprised. So so I wanted to reach out to people to say, what's going on? Do you need help? Are you doing okay? Are you、yeah. depressed? And you know like、uh, I'm trying to work with them, connect with them emotionally to hold on to each other. Otherwise, some people would be totally like shocked, like me, also lost. Don't know what to make of it. If you had a job, if you had a school, and all of a sudden everything is shut down. And、uh, they they could not even pay the bills. Think about that the financial stress too. You know, then you have to worry about getting sick, getting COVID. Oh, it's just、uh, so hard. I was trying to be positive, encourage people to look at future, to be optimistic. This is temporary. This is temporary. It'll be over soon. I remember I saw my post last in、uh, March. I was、uh, sharing my picture of Texas wildflowers in the spring to say, Hey, spring's coming, summer's coming. Be happy. Look forward to the future. You know, and this darkness will be over soon. So you have to be sometimes cheerleader. You know, get people to to be positive and to be happy again. You know, absolutely. Now you mentioned that the people in China that you knew were going through the same exact thing as we were here in America as the the pandemic started, and and we started to hear about. This new virus that nobody had ever heard of before, and we weren't we weren't sure what it would do, how would it affect people, and we certainly never imagined the the total implications that we're seeing today, and will continue to live through. I I assume for quite some time. There was a lot of. There's been a lot of anger in this country too because of the pandemic. I think Americans have felt very stressed, and one of the unfortunate things that we've done is look for someone to blame, and for a very small minority of people who 
haven't maybe completely understood how much China has changed since perhaps 1988 when when you left and and came here and and how progressive it is and how wonderful and wholesome the people are. They have blamed Asians for the coronavirus and there has been an uptick in hate crime. How will the coalition respond to that in a meaningful way to make sure that the people here of New Hampshire here in New Hampshire really see the Asian community for the wonderful people that they are. Well, that the first of all, um I always wanted to tell people you know that the Chinese people are very loving, wonderful people. And don't mix Chinese people, uh, aging people, with their um, totalitarian government. They, it is true, Chinese government with one-party dictatorship, CCP, China Communist Party, they did cover it up and they did delay it. They shut down Wuhan, okay, like right before Chinese New Year. After 5 million people already left Wuhan in January of 2020 to travel all over the China, all over the world, and brought those viruses to every corner of the world. And uh, WHO also covered up for China, and we did not hold China responsible to say, you need to give us truth, you need to give us the true numbers. And uh, I'm not surprised because I know the one party color, true color, they do not represent goodness of Chinese people. So we need to understand there is a big difference between the government and the people. And the Chinese people, I think some of them might have experienced some kind of, um, you know, complaining or blaming this country. I personally have not. I moved here in November of 2019, and uh, I'm the only one in my town, probably is uh, aging American. Everybody is so wonderful and nice, and nobody ever even blame me or ask me questions just like, a, you know, this or that. No, it's just everybody smiles, and, you know, of course, you know, you cannot tell. Sometimes, most time it's covered by the mask, but I have not personally experienced that. I did uh, see some other big cities, normally big cities with a high population density, that uh, some, uh, you know, cases like that. Um, but the thing, though, personally, I'm not offended by people calling that, uh, you know, CCP virus, Wuhan virus, because Wuhan is the origin. It's like today we talk about South Africa variant and, uh, you know, just like the way we do UK variant, it's, it's origin. And uh, but the thing is, though, that uh, I think most American people are still they're not blaming the agents who bring the virus. And, and those are the people who are individually maybe ignorant, don't understand China and don't understand what is the difference between its government and its people. So I, I, I just I don't buy into that. I always, uh, um, you know, feel like a welcome here and uh, those individual bad cases and discrimination need to stop and we need to stand up for ourselves. If that happened to us at the individual basis, we need to just stand up and voice ourselves. And I, I, I did have one incident when I lived in Colorado, some uh, woman called me bad name because we had a little bit of traffic issue with each other and she started calling me bad name. And, and, 
and she thought I could not speak English or something, and uh, I actually just kind of push back and speak friendly, but uh, very professionally, and uh, firmly to tell her, you know, you don't have reason to call me bad names. I am an American citizen here. Then she just ran away. She did not want to bother me because I shocked her by my like strong voice, the strength in my voice. So we do have to stand up for each other. Thank you, Lily. We do need to stand up for each other as we continue this battle. Thank you for listening to the third podcast in the Community Alliance for Teen Safety's Wellness Connections series. If you would like to participate in upcoming episodes, please reach out. Contact information can be found at catsnh.org. Once again, my name is Kimberly Hawes. Have a great day.